Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you for that introduction, and thank you for inviting me to come here. So this was actually the place where I got to know the Thomistic Institute, and now quite a few years ago that I sort of happened on a talk by the same Father Dominic Legg, who will be back in a few weeks to talk to you. And I think he was actually talking about natural law then as well. So it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it has changed a bit, but it was a wonderful talk, so I highly recommend that you come back for that. Uh, so what I'm going to be talking about is science and religion, and in more particular, science and Catholicism. And uh, I was, um, as I was thinking about this uh, topic, uh, overcoming the science and religion divide, I realized that I actually don't really want to overcome it too much. Uh, I think that there's a lot of mischief uh, that has come out of not properly dividing up the regimes of sci the scientific project and the regimes of religion. So in the so tradition of that uh, good fences make good neighbors, I'm going to be spending most of this talk talking uh, about what the scientific project is and its limitations and how that means that many of the, of the many of the so-called conflicts between science and religion are actually quite readily resolved. But that is not where we want to end. And that's why the, where the overcoming the divide comes back. So once we have put up these sort of guardrails or fences, what we then want to do is to bring them back together in constructive ways, to bring them back into conversation with one another while still uh, respecting sort of the, the two different disciplines that are uh, theology on the one hand and science on the other. So I'll... I'll be sprinkling that throughout the talk, but then we'll come back at the very end and think a little bit more, more deeply about what that is. But where I want to start with is how wonderful the, sci the sciences are and the scientific project is, and why, in some sense, we should all care about that the scientific project is done, is done right. So one of the goods of the scientific project is the human goods that it has produced. We can think about things like vaccines and different kinds of medical treatments that are coming out of the scientific project. Um, so ways to heal the sick. We can think about ways in which the scientific product has allowed us to grow crops that are more uh, nutritious, more kind of grown more efficiently, so how to feed the hungry. We can think about ways in which um, the scientific project has allowed us to teach more effectively what kind of uh, universe we're in, so how to teach the ignorant. These are all things that we are called to do as Catholics, and the scientific project has been immensely helpful in assisting us to do that in a better way. That is not what drew me to uh, studying the sciences, however. Instead, uh, what brought me here is a fascination, or maybe more of an obsession about truth. And where the scientific project really shines is as a tool to uncover truths about what kind of universe we live in, including about some of the different kinds of origin stories 
that we want to tell about our universe and the things that are in it. Uh, perhaps the most spectacular way in which uh, the science and especially my own discipline of astrophysics has helped in, in revealing to us what our world or the universe is like is the discovery of the Big Bang. That through the sciences, we can look back in time to something very close to the beginning uh, of, of our universe and see what that universe is like. I mean, the fact in its own that it seems to be revealing something like a beginning is uh, a very exciting thing. And I want to come back to that uh, a little bit later, uh, since that is one place where we definitely want to bring science and Catholicism in conversation uh, one, with one another. Uh, uh, continuing on in my own uh, discipline of astrophysics, and this is going to be the only time I'm really talking about um, an intellectual project that I have made any sort of, sort of significant contribution to, is that the sciences have revealed the truth about our own planet, our own solar system, where that comes from. So it has told us how stars and planets form. Um, what we now know is that if you look up at the sky, you see stars and you see all this, like, what looks like empty space between stars. Uh, by the help of telescopes looking at different wavelengths than visible light, we now know that that space is actually not empty, but full of dust and gas that can come together in clouds that can start to implode on themselves under gravity, and that is how you form stars. And if that implosion has a bit of rotation, which they always do, you need to preserve that rotation or angular momentum. And the way that nature preserves that is by putting that material in a disk around the star, and within that disk, then planets coagulate uh, and form. So again, this is revealing something quite deep uh, about what kind of universe we live in. It's showing that there is an immense causal power that's been invested uh, in material things in the universe. And that is also something that we would like to sort of bring back into conversation with a philosophical and theological understanding about what our universe is like. But I want to stay a little bit on these disks where planets are forming and how, um, how we can study what is going on in there since it relates to a third origin that I want to touch, touch upon, which is the origins of living things. So thanks to the advances of sciences and engineering, we now have amazing telescopes that can study these different structures in space that are hundreds, of, in this case, hundreds of light years away. I mean, there are other uh, cosmologists and astrophysicists that study things that are billions of light years away, but I stay in our local neighborhood uh, of our own galaxy to look at these planet-forming disks. Uh, so we have telescopes such as ALMA down in Chile that allows us to actually see, see these disks where planets are currently forming. And it gives us images um, where, we, where we can directly see that these disks are not uniform, but have these dark lanes carved out in them. And these dark lanes are there because there's missing material that these newborn planets are accreting up as they are. Uh, forming. What's even cooler from a chemistry point of view, and as you heard, my sort of uh, fundamental background is in chemistry, even though I've moved more and more into astronomy uh, over my career, 
is that we can use the same, same telescopes to just look at the very narrow portion of wavelength space or color space to identify specific molecules in these disks and see where these, what these molecules are like and where, they're holding, where they are sitting. So the images that you're seeing here, these are the blue tinted images, are all showing different molecular maps uh, of, these, of these disks. And one of the things we have learned from these kind of observations is that these disks are teeming with organic molecules, including uh, things like cyanides and nitriles. Now, this is interesting in its, sort of in its own right, but the reason that I find it really fascinating is that when people have tried to figure out how life might have originated here on Earth, uh, what, they, what they find, and this is not a solved problem, but what they find is that it looks like having nitriles available, so things like hydrogen cyanide, uh, is really important to kickstart this really complex chemistry that could have then transitioned into biology. So if we're thinking both about our own origins as a living planet, as well as the likelihood of finding life uh, elsewhere in the universe with its set of theological uh, consequences, um, we, it's really exciting that we are finding all these molecules that seem implicated in origins of life when we look at these disks where other planets are forming. And that brings me to a third origin, which is the origins of life. So we, we, in some sense, we have figured out at least the basic concepts of the beginnings of our universe. Not exactly the origins. It is important to keep in mind that what the Big Bang tells us is not how the universe came into existence, but rather how universe origin existence, a bizarre kind of universe that's super dense and super hot, but the universe, nonetheless, had that evolved over time, had expanded. So we want to keep that in mind and come back to what would actually be needed for a universe to come into existence. Then we had another kind of origins, the origins of planets, the made origins of sort of molecules. And there we are really seeing just the transformation of one kind of matter into another. And while we can be amazed that this is possible, that these sort of causal powers are invested in these dust grains that can become planets or atoms that can become things like water, uh, this seems intuitively to just be a very natural kind of transformation. And I think it's not really surprising to anyone uh, that we have found sort of laws of nature that explains those kind of transformations. But here we have now, with ordinance of life, we have a third one. It is definitely not like the ordinance of universe. We're talking about one kind of matter, like in sort of one kind of structure being transformed into a different kind of structure. It's the same atoms that you have in, in a molecules that are not in living things as you have in molecules that are in living things. So it's not like the origins of the universe, but it also doesn't seem to be exactly like the origins of planets where we have sort of tiny dust grains becoming a big planet. That, that seems like it's much easier to explain. So there are real questions. I mean, there are people who doubt that the origins of life could have been a natural process, that maybe there is, in some sense, a supernatural intervention needed. I think that it was a natural process that we will discover, uh, but at this point, we don't know for sure. We don't know how the origins of life exactly happened here on Earth. And the reason that I think we are going to discover that it is a natural process is sort of a combination of uh, 
belief in this in the power of the scientific process to uncover material and scientific truths on the one hand. And it seems to me that um, and this is a strong flavor of the Catholic sort of understanding of how God interacts in nature, that God primarily acts through secondary causes. Uh, that is, uh, rather than directly intervening and causing things, let's call it miraculously, uh, his preferred way of affecting change, where it is to human beings or to structures in the universe, is through working through someone else as an instrumental cause, which is, in some sense, gives the universe a great dignity that it gets to be part of its own self-realization. But whether or not we discovered origins of life, we can turn our gaze in towards life as it exists now using the tools of science. And one of the things that we discover when we do that is that at the heart of all living things is the genetic code, uh, which on its own is a fascinating thing, like that at the heart of this sort of most wonderful of creations is something like a language, um, which I think is something that's worth uh, sort of reflecting on, especially in the light of, of, the, of our beliefs that everything was created through the word, by the word. And it's maybe not so surprising that there is sort of a stamp of that uh, that is in, in all uh, living things. But what really gets me um, sort of excited is how this genetic code then uh, gets trans uh, transcribed to cause the kind of structures and processes that we see in all living things. <coughs> so this, um, this is an animation of one of the many kinds of processes that's going on in your cells as we speak. It's showing a motor protein uh, carrying a vesicle full of material from one portion, part of the cell uh, to another. And if this doesn't fill you with wonder about how strange and amazing life is, uh, I don't know what does. <coughs> so the scientific, um, the scientific process has been a wonderful project to reveal truths about the universe, about how, where different things come from and also what different kinds of things are like. Whether we're talking on the largest scales, you know, the Big Bang, how the whole universe evolved, or we are thinking about things like the origins of our own planet, origins of life, or what kind of creatures we are as living, uh, as living things. A third thing that the scientific project has given us are, are just uh, experiences of beauty. Uh, so this uh, is one of many images that we have recently received from the new space telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. It's showing uh, actually how stars are being formed. So it's related uh, to what we talked about a bit earlier, like how these uh, clouds of material collapse into form stars. And then when the stars are formed, it sort of pushes the, it sort of heats up its local environment and, and push them apart. These are things that can only be seen because we have, uh, through the process of applying science to engineering, have figured out how to build telescopes that reveal things that are not possible to see 
uh, with, with our own uh, eyes. So given this sort of the power of science, I think it is useful to just take a step back and ask ourselves, why has the scientific project been so successful in revealing truths about the universe? And it really comes down to the scientific process, what it is like, uh, what, it, what it does, how it functions. So I want to briefly go over that uh, with an example because it's also coming down to thinking then about what, what are the limitations. And what it really comes down to, as we'll see, is that the scientific project is really a dialogue between the subjective human mind on the one hand and the objective word around us on the other. And what makes the scientific process so powerful is that because this conversation is ongoing between sort of the our ideas and the reality around us over time is to weed out bad ideas and you keep the good ones. That's at least the general idea. But let's have a look at what the, what the scientific process should be in an idealized way. So uh, you'd need to start with a question, a sort of curiosity about the world. And I have taken as an example, you look up at the sun. Well, whenever it shows up, you look at the sun. Uh, and I think a very reasonable sort of question to ask yourself is, why does it shine? What powers something like the sun? The next step is to then try to find out as much as possible about the object you're interested in or process you're interested in, in this case, the sun, uh, and why it shines. So maybe you research different ways to produce light. That would be a reasonable uh, sort of approach. Uh, and as you have done, like gathered all this data, it's time to come up with some sort of preliminary idea uh, or hypothesis, uh, what uh, in this case could power the sun. And probably the thing that would first come to mind is that, well, we know other things that look like sort of gaseous little balls of fire. Uh, those are fires. So maybe the sun is like a big fire. And the way that fires work here on Earth is that you are breaking and forming molecular bonds and releasing uh, energy uh, while you do it. So maybe the sun is just one big collection of molecular gas uh, that is being converted to release uh, energy. Uh, so the next thing is then to design an experiment or an observation that would test that hypothesis. And there are different ways you could go about doing, doing this. You could try to like observe uh, what kind of species you have in the sun. Is it actually molecules? Um, the simplest thing, though, would be to first see, could there be enough molecules in the sun for this to even be a viable hypothesis? And it turns out that it could not. At least it could not if you think that the sun is uh, 4.6 billion years old, which we know today that it is. Um, in that case, we are off by many orders of magnitude just how much energy you could produce by this kind of chemical or fire kind of uh, transformation. So your conclusion here is that no, this hypothesis, we can disprove it just by weighing how massive the sun is. So at this point, you need to come up with another hypothesis that fits the facts better. And the hypothesis that scientists came up with um, a little bit more than 100 years ago uh, is that there's another way that we can get energy out of 
in some sense, breaking and forming bonds. And that's by looking at breaking and forming atoms. So we could see if that gives us enough energy, in this case of fusing hydrogen to form helium. And this time around, you get that the mass of the sun, if that's all starting out as hydrogen and then turning into helium, that could power the sun for 10 billion years. So that's good news. Uh, first of all, we are only halfway into consuming the sun's uh, power. I guess the bad news <laughs> is that in a billion, only in a billion years, the sun will unfortunately be too hot for us and the whole earth will be scorched. And even if the sun exists for another three, four billion years, this planet or life on this planet will not. So good news, bad news. But uh, you, you have, uh, so you have this, you come to a conclusion that this is a viable uh, path. Does this mean that you now know for sure uh, that the sun is powered by fusion? Well, what the sort of basic or idealized theory of the scientific process tells us is no. What you can do with demonstrate, the best you can do is demonstrating that an observation is consistent with, it, with an idea or hypothesis. You can never prove that it is, uh, that the hypothesis is true, because in theory, there could be other hypotheses that also fits, uh, fits the data. And that's why scientists, even after 100 years of showing that Einstein's theory of relativity works really well, still wants to go and take measurements in really extreme places uh, to see if it's still true there. And that was the scientific uh, motivation uh, for this image, which shows a black hole at the center of the galaxy. Uh, and it turns out Einstein's theory of relativity still works, uh, also in these giant black holes, the center of galaxies. Um, I suspect, though, that the other, maybe even stronger reason for this astrophysical observation was it gives you a really cool image of a black hole. Uh, but it did also, again, tell us that Einstein, once again, was correct. So at the heart of the scientific process, there is a real asymmetry in that it takes many, many observations to uh, get you feel, to feel confident that, that a hypothesis is true enough uh, to be useful. And at that point, we call it a scientific, like a theory. Uh, so a theory should be seen as the best explanation, the best scientific explanation that we have of an event. And how to compare that kind of truth, because it is telling us something true about the universe, to philosophical truth uh, is actually a really interesting thing to ponder. I'm not going to get into it further, but Einstein's theory of relativity is much more than we would in sort of everyday language call a theory. This is extremely well established. I've been tested you know, millions of times and it's holding up every single time, but it is still something different from a mathematical truth, for example. That's just something that's important to keep in mind. So this is all uh, sort of well and good. So this explains some of why the scientific uh, process works. But it doesn't explain uh, why it works better in some instances than others and why sometimes it takes a long time, maybe much longer than what we think in hindsight, to change our minds about uh, something material. And I think the most famous example 
uh, is um, when we figured out that the Earth was orbiting the Sun rather than the Sun orbiting the Earth. In hindsight, you can start seeing already in the Middle Ages that people are starting to think about this and they're starting to devise some tests, but they, may, they sort of mainly come back that no, the Earth is, um, the, the, the best explanation is that the Earth is at the center of the universe. And even as more and more data comes in, including Galileo's observations, that for sure you cannot have um, Mars and Venus orbiting the Earth. So you're taking out two planets uh, out of the sort of five, no five known at the time and saying that they for sure cannot orbit the Earth. Uh, furthermore, there are moons around Jupiter, so there's also another thing that's not orbiting the Earth. So you have sort of taken out the sort of traditional Aristotelian model where everything is orbiting the Earth, and yet there's a lot of resistance to adopt this very simple and beautiful model uh, that the Earth is orbiting the Sun. Now, this story is more complicated than just that sort of like philosophical hesitation. There were observations that really pointed away from uh, the Earth orbiting uh, the Sun. I'd be happy to get into that in the, in the sort of Q&A if you're, if you're curious. But I think in hindsight, there was definite overreach from the church in declaring something to be uh, false as the scientific evidence was gathering for it being, being true. And that tells us something that how easy we accept scientific evidence or don't accept them also has to do with sort of what other beliefs that we have and what sort of the currents of the society are at the time. A more recent, in a sense, a more fun example of this actually has to do with the Big Bang, which I promised we would come back to. So in the, uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, astronomers had gotten good enough telescopes that they started seeing that there were other galaxies than our own. Up until then, uh, it was not clear whether sort of our galaxy, the Milky Way, was the entire universe or not. But so given about 100 years ago, telescopes were getting good enough that we could see other, um, other galaxies. Now, they were not good enough to produce these kind of uh, beautiful pictures, but they were good enough to tell that there were really external galaxies. Furthermore, uh, thanks to the genius of American astronomer Edwin Hubble, uh, people like he and others were starting to figure out that these galaxies, the further away they were, the redder they looked. Now, there are a couple of different possible explanations why galaxies can look redder, but one of them is that they are moving away from us. So this is similar to the ambulance kind of siren is coming towards you, it's sounding, sounding more high-pitched. If it's going away from you, it's sounding like a sort of lower pitch. Same with galaxies, look redder when they move away, lower when they move towards us. So he was seeing that galaxies were moving away from us and they were moving faster the further away they were, if you interpreted this sort of reddening that way. At the same time, a certain Albert Einstein that we have already discussed was uh, discovering that the sort of physical universe was better described by the theory of relativity than the previous sort of description of gravity that we have had, had had from Newton. And what's important about that is that that theory sort of naturally um, wants a dynamic universe. It's very difficult to have a static universe when you have the theory of relativity. 
Um, Einstein, however, like everyone else at the time, believed that the universe was static and therefore inserted a so-called cosmological constant in his equations to force the universe to be static. Edwin Hubble, on the other hand, also believed that the universe was static despite his discovery. He died about a couple of decades later, not believing that the Big Bang was true. Instead, what it took was the genius of a certain Father Lemaitre, so a Belgian physicist priest, to put these two things together. So the, uh, this reddening of the galaxies, the moving away, and Einstein's theories, and realize that the universe was expanding. And that if you have something that's expanding, and you go back in time, you're going to get something that's incredibly dense and hot. He called it the, the primordial atom. Uh, it was, he did not call it the Big Bang. That was actually a term used to make fun of it. It was like this ridiculous idea that the universe started with the Big Bang. Um, so why was there so much hesitancy, hesitancy to this idea? And why did it take someone like Father Lemaitre to come up with this idea? Well, the hesitancy first. So when we are now 100 years ago, we're coming from a long tradition starting in the Enlightenment about the universe that's described as quite mechanic. So something that's constant in time and, and space. Um, so there's this strong sort of philosophical commitment uh, to a universe that doesn't change too much over time. And that's held whether people realize it or not. It was certainly held by Albert Einstein as well as Edwin uh, Hubble. So we have that on the one hand. And then on the other, there was a people are very suspicious about that the Big Bang theory just sounded a bit too biblical. It sounded a bit like the universe might have a beginning and like it sounded a bit too much like a story, uh, which is something as this was a time when the academia was already becoming more and more atheist, was not the popular uh, thing to claim. So why Father Lemaitre? Uh, on the one hand, we can look at his scientific background. He was one of very few people who had a mathematical skill to understand the theory of relativity. And he did his PhD at MIT in the Cambridge, MIT and Harvard was where a lot of this action was happening with his observations. He also had this astronomical understanding. So I think that is one way to explain why, why he came up with this idea. Uh, but I can't help but wonder if it didn't assist him, that he did not share uh, this prejudice that the universe must be something that was static in time. That he had an intuition about that the universe had a beginning. And if that, that helped him to, when this idea popped into his head, which I'm sure it did to some other scientists as well, he didn't just like, make it go away, but took it seriously and started thinking through how one could test it if this was a proper uh, description uh, of the universe. So this is one, in some sense, limitation of the scientific project, that it is a human project. It is done by humans. It is this said, like, dialogue between the human mind and the world around us, which means that it is subject to all the weaknesses of the human mind as well, both individually and collectively. Another limitation of the scientific project is the scope of what it can investigate. Uh, I mean, the scientific project, as we just looked at together, has been incredibly successful in uncovering truths uh, about the universe. Uh, 
And that has led some to think that the only truths worth, truths worth having are those that are revealed to by the scientific project. But there are many kinds of things that, that you cannot investigate using, uh, using science. You cannot use a scientific method to explain the beauty of the pietas. You cannot use a scientific method to figure out what somebody is thinking or feeling. You cannot use a scientific method to answer the question, did Peter really see Jesus walking on water? These are not scientific questions. And yet, as stating that these therefore are not valid questions with that you can say something true or false about is absurd. Of course, there is, Peter either did or did not see Jesus walking on water. Um, something can be morally true or morally, morally false. Something can be politically correct in the sense that like you make a, a correct decision, a prudent decision or not. These are all things that you can have, uh, say something true or false about. And the, sci the scientific method just can't address it. The scientific method needs something material to measure to be able to use this machinery uh, that has been developed, this, you know, this process of going from idea to, uh, to verification or like at least testing or falsification. Another thing, uh, that the scientific project cannot have anything to say about, with a big caveat, uh, is the existence of God. If you believe that uh, God is being uh, itself or being himself, rather than something that is in this word, well, then it is not, he's not something that can be measured. He's not something that can be tested or verified or falsified with the scientific method. But I do want to put like, you know, make one distinction here, which is that we can, we can use observations of the natural order to say something to, about God and actually even have it, lead, have it lead us to God. Aquinas' famous proofs for God's existence all start with some observations of what the universe of the world is like. But these are not per se sort of scientific observations. They're closer to sort of borderline philosophical ones or like at least very, very general ones, things like there's change, there's being, there is sort of order, ordered action. Uh, these are all observations, but it are not things that you would think about as, as scientific. Like in, in, some, in some way, these are things that are presupposed by science rather than things you could prove by science. I mean, let's say that uh, things like there is order in the universe. Well, if there wasn't, you could not have a scientific inquiry. But it is not something, it's something that's presupposed, not something that's proved by the scientific principle. So that is sort of a slight caveat, but not, not really, dependent on how broadly you want to think about what science is. There is also within the, the world or within the universe, there are things that in principle cannot be investigated scientifically or like origins of things that cannot be investigated scientifically. And I'm thinking especially of two things. One is the origins of the whole created order, so what we would call the universe, unless we believe there's a multiverse, in which case that would be the created order, but assuming that it is our own universe. 
as I was saying at the beginning of the talk, um, when we think about the Big Bang, that is not the origin of the universe. That is the very first fraction of a second of the universe that's being described uh, by the Big Bang. Uh, if we want to think about how the universe came into existence, that is not something that the scientific, uh, the, the scientific um, method can answer because it's asking how, some, how something came out of nothing and the sciences deal with something already being there. The other thing that in principle cannot be investigated uh, by, the, uh, by the scientific method is the origin of the human soul. Philosophically, you can convince yourself that the human soul exists. Um, and if you, or like let's say that we have a rational or supernatural soul. Uh, but it's not something that once you have realized it's immaterial or rational, then again, it's outside the purview of the sciences. And uh, I mean, I think it's one of these like amazing reflections to, to ponder that, that the two things that God brings into existence out of nothing is on the one hand, the, the entire universe, and on the other hand, my soul. I mean, that is something uh, that is pretty mind uh, mind-blowing. But even things that in theory, uh, like that sometimes or most of the times can be investigated scientifically cannot always be investigated scientifically. And I'm thinking here about material things that are transformed in a miraculous way. Uh, so this is, uh, we talked already about uh, Jesus walking on, on water, uh, whether that could be scientifically investigated. And the answer is no, miracles cannot be, well, again, with a big sort of distinction, you cannot disprove a miracle scientifically in the sense that if something happens, there's this sort of unique event that happens because God wants to show us or reveal something about himself, that its uniqueness sort of by definition puts it outside of the purview of science, which relies on repeated observations or experiments. Um, there are ideas about that, there, that this is one of the conflict areas, the sort of the existence of miracles would either be sort of a threat to the sciences or be disprovable uh, by the sciences. I think both of those are completely wrong. Uh, again, happy to get back to them in sort of in more extensively in the Q&A, but just to give you sort of like very, some very brief uh, intuition. Um, I think the idea that miracles would be a threat to sciences is that, well, how can you trust your astronomical observation if God at any point could sort of step in and move the stars around? Um, so if we had an evil demon God, I mean, that would be a problem. You maybe could not actually uh, trust your scientific observations. But in the Christian tradition, what we believe miracles are, are signs. Uh, so sort of secretly messing up a poor astronomer's observation would not be a very good sign of God's love and compassion and goodness and all that. And therefore, knowing who God is, we don't have to be worried about that he's going to mess up our scientific inquiries. Uh, the other idea that sometimes science disproves, uh, disproves the existence of miracles goes something like this. There's always a more rational explanation than a miracle. 
So let's say that your friend broke her arm. She holds it out and you see it healing in front of you. That would be a pretty cool uh, miracle. According to this school of thought, it would say it's more rational to believe that you are hallucinating than that you're seeing a miracle because miracles can't happen. You can argue philosophically and theologically like the soundness of that argument, but I would put it to you that it's not the scientific one. It's, it depends on what philosophical and theological commitments uh, that you have. Um, which brings me to the final sort of limitation uh, of science, which is the final one that I want to talk about, which is that it's not self-sufficient. The scientific project relies, and we already touched upon this a little bit, relies on philosophical, and I would even say the theological um, ideas uh, for it to work. So if we think, if we, if we sort of dig down into it, there is no science that does not explain why there is such a well-ordered universe that can be described and investigated using the scientific principle. You cannot scientifically prove that science is a good path towards truth. You cannot scientifically prove that there is a reliable connection between your mind and sort of what you're imagining and objective reality around you. You cannot scientifically prove that your mind or even explain why our minds can be trusted in identifying true things. There is nothing in, I mean, if we're thinking about that our bodies have evolved through evolution, uh, there is, that might explain why we are good and sort of approximating, like approximately understand the universe around us, but it does not explain why we can do really advanced mathematics and then apply that mathematics to explain uh, the Big Bang uh, theory. There is just not at all an obvious connection between the two. I mean, if you have a commitment to that all we are are evolved animals, you can maybe try to come up with some explanations why this could be possible, but it is not something you could derive from an evolutionary theory. So these, uh, so I spent you know, quite some time setting up fences uh, around, uh, around the sciences, what they can and cannot do. So in the last minutes, I want to bring back, uh, come back to sort of the title of overcoming the divide between uh, sciences uh, and, uh, well, between science and religion. And it goes in both, in both directions. So if I start with how should the sciences inform uh, re religion and religious faith? Well, one of the things that the sciences are really good about is doing some house cleaning, making sure that we don't sort of get stuck in superstition, uh, that we don't call things miraculous that actually have a natural explanation, and that we have, get sort of a proper appreciation of what things are caused through secondary causes. So in, God is the cause of everything ultimately, but what is caused you know, within the universe by secondary causes and what are true, true miracles. Uh, so that is when, if you think you have had a miracle and you want someone declared a saint because you uh, asked for the intercession of a particularly holy person and, uh, and something miraculous happened, 
the Vatican is going to have a pretty in-depth investigation of that using the tools of science. Another way, which I guess is more constructive, or in my mind, more, more beautiful, in which way that the sciences inform, uh, inform our faith, is there can really be a path towards God. If we look at something like the Big Bang Theory, it doesn't prove that the universe had a beginning. But it gives, I think, the most beautiful icon of a beginning in time that not just that one could possibly imagine, I don't think we could have imagined it if we hadn't, uh, hadn't discovered it. When we look at the universe around us and just how like the, the detail and the beauty and the immensity, the number of natural laws that emerges, and just how much causal power there is, how much uh, sort of physics and chemistry and biology that emerges th through these natural processes. And I think what is revealed to us is just an incredible generosity of, of God endowing the universe with these causal powers. I mean, this is someone who doesn't just like creating, but likes to involve his creation that in that sort of transformative creative process. You can think about it a little bit sort of analogously to being given free will and therefore be part of our own self-realization. Sometimes the whole universe is, gets to be part of its own self-realization through these causal powers that have been given, uh, given to it. But I said, it also goes the, goes the other way around. I, said, I told you that the limits of the scientific process is that you can't prove that it should work from it, uh, on, it, on its own, uh, like using scientific, uh, scientific process. Using science, you can't prove that you can actually trust the scientific project. Maybe you should actually be quite skeptical uh, of it, that we can actually find truth if all, you, if all we are are sort of evolved animals. But if we hold by faith that we are created beings, and not just any kind of created beings, but created in the image and likeness of God, there should be a real confidence in our power of reason to identify truths uh, about the world uh, around us. So I would uh, put it to you that the Christian faith provides a really good foundation for the scientific project and for trusting uh, the, the outcome of the scientific project, even if not in the short run necessarily. In the short run, we are, as I said, we have all these weaknesses uh, that ultimately comes from the fall. Uh, that limits what we can do as individuals. But over time, we really have gotten a much better understanding about what the universe is like. And the reason we should trust it is that we can trust that the same creator who created these orders, laws, and structures of the universe also created our minds. So it shouldn't sometimes be too surprising that there is a correspondence between the two and there are ways we can understand the universe using this truth-seeking uh, kind of mind that has been given to us. And I think I will stop there and take any questions. Uh, so there were a couple of, so, so 
sort of proto-scientists already in the Middle Ages started to have, I think about that maybe we really do orbit this, like both the Earth or rotates around the own axis and we orbit the sun. So they started to try to come up with ideas like, okay, how can we test this? One idea was like, well, if we are traveling that fast through space, we should be feeling a headwind. There's no headwind. So we don't move. So that was one idea. Now, in, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that crazy. <laughs> uh, but actually, people started then realizing, and Galileo was one of them, but there were others as well, that no, you shouldn't feel a headwind because the atmosphere and we are moving together. So, like, so if you think about it a little bit more, you can see that was not a great, uh, uh, great one. But another and much, much more sophisticated and much harder one to disprove is that if the Earth uh, orbits the sun, uh, then uh, we should see stars slightly moving on the sky. And the reason for this, you can actually do this as an experiment. Um, if, you, uh, if you cover one eye and you look at, you look at the a particular point, so maybe you're looking at, I don't know if that's Jesus or God the Father, one of the two, uh, you look at him, and then you sort of you put out your thumb to cover him, and then you do the same with the other eye, and you will see that your thumb has moved with respect to Jesus. That's your <laughs> it works. <laughs> so if you, if you so the same thing should work on a much larger scale when the Earth moves around the sun. So if, you know here's the sun, here's the Earth, six months apart. If the if you from the Earth you are looking at the particular star. Uh, you should see it sort of looking like it's uh, projected towards other background stars differently when you look from these two different directions. Pretty sophisticated kind of test. And what they found is that the stars didn't move. So they were like, okay, so we, we're not orbiting the sun. What they didn't realize was just how far away stars are. So it actually took 19th century telescopes before they could detect was called parallax uh, of stars. And now the reason they didn't realize how far stars were is another actually very sophisticated idea, which is that they were like, well, probably stars are like the sun. It's, uh, and if it's like the sun, and we can sort of see how big stars are. If you look at the sky, they look like they're maybe, I don't know, this big, something like that. And they were like, okay, so we know they're that big. The sun is like this big on the, on the sky, right? And if you move things further away, they look smaller. So we're just going to see how far away are the stars if you sort of scale down the size. What they didn't know, what again took another 100 years to develop, is the laws of optics. And that there is a limit to the resolution that you can see with your eyes uh, that depends on basically the size uh, of, your, of your lens. Uh, so that they thought that stars are much closer to, to us than they really are, and therefore you should see this parallax. So that was a pretty powerful sort of objection, which did not really become resolved until a couple of hundred years later. But I think the biggest problem of all was that there was not yet a physics that could explain how could the Earth be suspended in air and sort of orbit the, the sun. In the old Aristotelian physics, it sort of made sense. The Earth was heavy, so it was sitting at the center. And then you had all these light planets and and the sun, which naturally were sort of higher, higher up. That was like, made some sort of sense. Why would a heavy earth 
be orbiting what was thought of being this like light sort of evanescent sun. It didn't make sense. So when this really became a completely accepted idea was after Newton discovered the theory of gravity. You had sort of a physical uh, sort of explanatory kind of framework to, to put the heliocentrism in. But I would say even, even during Galileo's time, there were scientists who were definitely all, both within and outside of the church who were moving into the heliocentric camp uh, because Galileo already destroyed the idea, as I said, that Venus and Mars could possibly uh, orbit the Earth. So that's uh, maybe more than you asked for. But <laughs> um, I, I like to I like the uh, the talk about Galileo and the the uh, uh, heliocentrism versus uh, what was it the geocentrism? Yeah. Okay. So, um, but we still say that the 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 sun rises in the morning. Yes. Which is sort of like a, a pre heliocentric model because it's real to us. And so it, it sort of like gives us a difference between scientific truth and the truth that we live in our lives. And, and that's the way I see it, is the, the difference between religion and science and sort of how science sort of distracts from, from the real messages to us. Um, so I guess there are a couple of different things there. Uh, one is, uh, which I'm not sure that you meant, uh, but is that, okay, you have this sort of objective scientific truths that is telling us that the Earth is orbiting the sun, but then you have the subjective experience of the sun rising, and that religion is more like the subjective experience and the, than more than anything else. And that I would push back on. Okay. Um, I, I, it seems to me like, like a lot of the, the things, when, when we involve science and religion, it's always about like seeing the evidence for the flood or seeing the evidence for, for a garden of Eden or something like that. And I, I think, I, I say it distracts from it because the, the, the real message of these things, are, to me at least, aren't, aren't really the, uh, the physical existence of them. It's always what are the messages that you can get out of you know, surviving the flood and, and you know, moving on, and what is the, the message that you get out of a, a garden that was made for you? Yeah, let, let me pick up on that, because I think that is a more interesting question, because I think that actually, I mean, again, I would push back in that that is like science distracting from um, sort of proper spiritual reading of the Bible. I think it's literalism that's distracting from a proper spiritual reading of the Bible. And I think the Genesis one is like a, a very good example where actually I think in some sense science helped. And this goes back to at least St. Augustine, but probably earlier. So if we look at, look at Genesis, which is often where sort of this sort of science and religion kind of clash is being placed because it's talking about both the origins and the sort of early development of the universe in a way that's at least superficially, looks very different to the Big Bang theory that I talked uh, briefly about. But here I think even, like, in some sense, you don't need to know any science to know that this text was not meant to be scientifically read. It gives its own clues, which is really awesome. Uh, and one of the clues that it gives is that you have day and night starting very early on in the passage, uh, but then you have the sun being created a few days later. And even though we think about ancient Israelites and inspired author Genesis, didn't know as much science as we do, didn't know as much about sort of the material universe as we do, 
for sure he knew that day and night is connected to the presence or the absence of the sun. That I think we can know for sure. So that, that, that is sort of text itself is telling us that it's the main message, as you were saying, is something different from what we think about sort of a scientific explanation. And I would say some of the messages, is, this is like, I mean, St. Augustine wrote like multiple long uh, sort of commentaries on what he called the literal meaning of Genesis, uh, but which we should not take to mean literalistic. Um, some of the things that are there is that God, first of all, created the universe out of nothing. That that is, the, that is an immense sort of truth that's coming out of Genesis. Uh, another thing is that how he created to be orderly, to, uh, to have things sort of have their different places. A third one is how he created humans, which is, first of all, he created them in the image or likeness of him, which gives the human being this incredible dignity. A fourth one is how he created them, which is that he formed the body out of the dust of the earth and then breathed his spirit into them, uh, showing that humans is this like, strange creature that's sort of straddling the divide between the material and the immaterial order. So there are tons, I agree with you, I mean, there are tons of messages that are in there which are the ones you want to focus on. But I think actually having a sort of a scientifically correct worldview helps you to see what is the what what is the real message. And I think when we're thinking about so when this gets confused, as I say, I think we have a better understanding of Genesis one because we know that it's not the scientific text than if you were living in a, in a society that didn't know that. And St. Augustine is the person that I would go to read. I think he does a, it's wonderful in his uh, literal reading uh, of Genesis, which is this really sophisticated, I mean, it sounds quite contemporary in, in many ways. That just, and I think part of it is that he had such a firm foundation in, sort of in reason and in the science of the day. So, so that's uh, just where I would take it. Please. Yeah, so uh, perhaps this is a bit complicated, but does chance exist? Is chance order that we cannot see? Did God create chance? Is there any chance that God created chance? And, nice. Uh, how does chance fit with religion? Okay. Uh, because they could potentially explain miracles through chance. Say, well, we don't know yet, but who knows, every billions of billions of times, a human being can walk and walk. Okay, so a couple of things to unpack there, uh, and I'm not going to get to everything, but it's sort of how chance fits fits into an understanding. I think of God, like I think where it typically comes up is thinking of divine providence, that everything is ordered ultimately for the good by God. How can you have chance uh, be part of that? That it seems like there's like there's a clash between the existence of chance and um, uh, and this sort of divine uh, providence or order. And this is um, what we mean by chance uh, and whether there's anything that happens in a way that's sort of, in some sense, intrinsically unpredictable is an interesting uh, one. Uh, macroscopically, most of the time we talk about things happening by chance, we talk about things happening in sort of an unpredictable way from some vantage point, but not necessarily unpredictable when we take into account the entire universe. 
But if we get down to the very microscopic word sort of that are quantum mechanics, there there seems to be an intrinsic sort of uncertainty uh, that's part of sort of the fabric of the universe. So in either case, these two kinds of uncertainties could God's is, is are they at odds with God's providence? And I would say uh, I would say no. Uh, there is, I mean, you can take this as sort of somewhat analogous to how do we have free will and is God providentially sort of governing our lives? And that, that is, I mean, that, that is a somewhat similar kind of question. And the answer is that God's providence works det deterministically for deterministic systems. It can, it can work using um, uh, chance for systems that are governed by chance. And, it, and he works out his will for us using our free will, that these are not things that are at odds with one another. And a very sort of, it's not the perfect analogy, but I think that, that you can even see how human beings can use chance to create order or to, to, be, to create something that is, is useful. We're thinking about how to uh, set up ways to, like how, how to, uh, get some sort of randomness going. Uh, it's, it's a very common thing in computer science to uh, get something at least that, uh, that simulates randomness, where you means it's because you want to write some hidden messages or have a process that sort of picks out noise in a way that's, that's random. This is something that's frequently used to produce something sort of productive. So we are using chance in some sense for our sort of human, uh, human providence. And I think that should give us some intuition. There's something that God can also govern through chance just as he can govern through our free will, just as he can govern through deterministic systems. And, that, uh, and they, his uh, providence is not in competition with this sort of different kinds of systems, but it's working through them. And this is ultimately because he is the creator of all. So yes, uh, I believe that God is ultim the ultimate cause also of quantum mechanics and the sort of the very base level chance that exists there. But can we actually say that, that in quantum mechanics uh, there's an intrinsic unpredictability? Isn't that not a scientific question? Can science actually say there's an intrinsic something? Uh, no, it's a very short answer, but uh, the reason that most scientists, or like the most common interpretation of quantum mechanics is that there is a true uncertainty at the bottom of it, is that there are, sort of everything makes more sense uh, if there is. But this comes back also to the nature of the sort of scientific project that you can put up a hypothesis and it can be sort of validated by observations but you cannot guarantee that there isn't something else that would, would work instead. So most sort of philosophers of science, as well as scientists themselves, think about this, believe it to be a true uncertainty, but no, it's not proven. So science is just a model? It depends what you say with, about just a model. Um, it is... Um, something much more than the kind of sort of ideas or a model we typically have because it's so well tested. But it is something different from a mathematical or a philosophical truth. And I think actually working out what that is, is a really interesting sort of intellectual project that there are also Catholics or theologians, philosophers that are thinking about right now, which I'm pretty excited about.
What do you say to the atheists who would um, kind of put it on you to um, say you're, you're believing it positively in, in, in a thought? I'm not. I'm, I'm just saying I don't know, or I, 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 I'm not making any positive claim, therefore you should have your evidence for God, but I don't. Uh. I think you should have evidence for God. Okay. I think. I mean, I think in some sense, uh, I think that's a valid approach by an atheist. Uh, you know, our institute is named after a person who also didn't think it beneath him to take a step back and ask the question, "Does God exist?" He came up with two pretty powerful objections, or synthesized two powerful objections. Um, one is that, well, Christianity claims that God is all good. If you have someone who, something is infinitely good, that should swallow up all evil, but evil exists in the world, and therefore God does not exist. Objection one. Objection two is that you can actually explain everything in the universe by natural, uh, sort of natural laws and human will. Like, you don't need God as the hypothesis. So he, so I mean, he put that on paper as sort of a valid intellectual engagement. And I think uh, for those who are so inclined to sort of delve into philosophy, I think this is, this is a very good, like, that is a good, there's one path to saying this is evidence of God's existence than his five ways uh, as a philosophical argument. But I think also uh, when atheists sometimes claim that there's no evidence for God's existence, that's simply not true. I mean, you have this philosophical evidence. You have the sort of religious experiences that keep popping up everywhere that people are having. I mean, I would say that's kind of evidence. You have the history of Jesus' resurrection and the very quick spread of Christianity, which is not trivial to explain without there actually being a resurrection. So simply saying that there, there isn't any evidence it's just false. I think it's the question is how strong do you think those evidence are? And I think it is important for all of us like, to actually think about what we think are the strongest evidence and to build up sort of a reasoning around it. For some, it's going to be this more philosophical. From, for some, it's going to come more from the sort of people are having all these experiences or this miracle that happened or this sort of historical context, uh, whichever, not every, um, or even this sort of, I think actually the one that's made it most powerful though is not something that is strictly evidence, but is the experience that every single human has that there are moral goods and moral evils. And that is something that's very difficult to hold to be true if you don't believe that there is something that someone that's outside of the universe. So I would probably go there instead and say to the atheist, you claim you don't believe in God. And yet I hear you making these moral pronouncements. You defend where those morals are coming from um, if uh, all there is is sort of democracy that you can vote what is good and what is evil. So. I just want to follow up. Do you find yourself having to um, uh, take that, those arguments and use those uh, to defend your faith with your colleagues or in your career? You're now spoken. Uh, Catholic within a, a very secular field. I'm just wondering uh, how that is. Oh, I wish. Unfortunately, uh, my colleagues never challenge me no. on religious <laughs> things, so I never get the chance to put
put the Summa in front of them. And uh, uh, so, so I think it's, and I think this comes to maybe also more of a question of sort of tactics. Uh, I think we should all have some way of defending our faith and it doesn't have to be the same path for everyone for when we get called to do it. But my sort of tactic has been to be very open to questions from secular colleagues and students. And it happens then and then, not very often, but it does happen. And then have a couple of different kinds of arguments, depending on what kind of person it is, to at least bring a little bit of doubt into their atheism. I think to begin with, I think that's all you can hope for. And I find that the one that resonates with most people is actually the one about morals. Uh, I think just... um, Free will, people can sort of try to explain away, even though I think at least we live consistently with our beliefs. I mean, everyone lives as if free will and morals exist. Um, We actually believe that they exist. And I think that kind of consistency, I think uh, especially sort of intellectual people, scientifically minded people, find that consistency or like inconsistency that they hold to be disturbing. So just get them a little bit disturbed, and then maybe they're open for some of these other sort of pieces of evidence that uh, you should also know. You had a question. Um, I guess kind of going with that. Yeah. Um, so when they claim that something is a miracle, how is it they know it's a miracle, or is it just a, uh, an experiment that has gone wrong? Like they said, we, we tried that theory, it doesn't work. What, in a sense, like would so the most common miracle, when we're thinking about sort of contemporary, the contemporary word, uh, are those of healings that are unexplained uh, using medicine. So I don't think that you can, at the end of the day, be sort of 100% sure, but they have a pretty high bar of how unlikely it has to be, and like how many, in some sense, non-Catholic doctors have to say that this just cannot be explained by any of the kind of medicinal like understanding we have or like how the human body uh, works. Um, but at the end of the day, as we're talking about the kind of truths you get from science, they are somewhat probabilistic. Uh, even if like, so again, exactly how to think about them is, 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 is non-trivial, but the church has put a very high bar of how unlikely it has to be. Uh, to be declared a miracle. Um, so yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so I think it's a. I think when it comes to materialism, or that that is not a sufficient explanation, I think the powers of the sort of human mind uh, is where you would want to go from a sort of purely philosophical uh, point of view. That it's just very difficult to explain how a purely sort of material animal could reason about the kind of abstract things that we could. Now, that is something, I think the problem though, many of these, I would say like sort of philosophical reasonings is that they take a lot of time and patience to work through. So if somebody, if you're gonna have that conversation with someone, they kind of already have to be committed to that this is an interesting conversation to have and that they also want to learn. Uh, So that's why, even though I think many of these sort of like evidence are, are real, like getting to a point where you can actually have a true conversation about these kind of different kinds of evidence, I think is very challenging. Uh, I have not formally studied philosophy, so I find myself persuaded when I hear philosophers talk about these kind of arguments, but I'm not sure that I could actually tell them in a way that would be as persuasive, just not having that training. I think 
one of the things um, that I feel very strongly is to push back against the idea that scientists can sort of do everything. I mean, obviously, I just gave a talk on sort of philosophy and theology, so I realize I'm not <laughs> doing a very good job uh, on this. Uh, but, but I think there is, I think there is a certain sort of idea that's sort of crept into the university, which is that sort of the difficult so intellectually like real stuff is the sciences, but everyone can write and sort of philosophize and, you know, critique movies. So basically the things in like the humanities and philosophies, like, I mean, if, if you know science, you can certainly say something about that too. And that's not true. There is that the deep discipline and sort of practice that at least I try to be a little bit humble about that I actually don't know that much. So that's my sort of like non-answer. But when it comes to, I think the, the moral argument, I mean, I think, um, I think that is a good discussion to have because I think you pretty quickly get to a place where you also see that we, we seem to have evolved to also have a lot of inclinations that are not moral, that are evil, uh, in fact. And that there is something within us that is distinguishing uh, between sort of inclinations that are good and inclinations that are evil. And that it's actually really good how we have built up sort of a civilization and expectations that fight against some of the things we have evolved to do. I mean, some very sort of common examples would be that we have basically evolved to be very suspicious against people who are sort of coming from somewhere else, like don't belong to sort of our tribe or our family. And that that is something that we sort of actively need to, to work uh, to work against and that that is a moral thing uh, to do. Uh, so trying to say that uh, what is good is what we have sort of evolved to think to be good. I mean, Nazis thought that Nazism was good. So I think at that, that point becomes more of sort of a, a vote. And I think very few people, when they think that through, would actually be happy to stay there. Uh, I think most people would quite, would want to claim that even if every single person on the face of the earth uh, thought that something like Nazism was a good idea, that would still be a moral evil. And I, and I think once you get to that, you even take like, the, the sort of the all human beings now living out of the picture, you're saying this is still, still an evil, I think, I think that's, that's a good conversation to have. I don't know if I have sort of a killer argument, but I think even start having that conversation is, I think, something that's likely to disturb people a bit. At least that's what I have found, that that's the sort of line of reasoning that works the best. In, um, just, uh, sorry, in, uh, <laughs> in this same line, just a more personal question is, what would you tell somebody who says, well, great, you put your faith in God, I put my faith in science. What we cannot explain today, we will explain in 100 years. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting belief in uh, that I I think well I think fundamentally like I say I don't think that's a terrible place to sort of start a conversation but you very quickly get to a point where there are questions that you cannot in principle answer scientifically and we looked at some of them so if you have your belief is solely in science and explaining the universe you're going to have a very small universe to believe in, right? And I think, so I think that is, that is one way to sort of tell people, no, you should, you should aim higher than just focusing on, on scientific, uh, scientific truths. But the other one is that also fundamentally, 
you just can't use science to show that that is, that is a reasonable thing to do. I mean, that is ultimately a philosophical claim. So at least they would have to add in philosophy uh, to it, even if they don't want to go all the way to religion. And I think once you get people started on a philosophy, that's also a good path to, uh, to start thinking about these sort of bigger, maybe God-centric questions. Was that maybe the last one? I see we are at a time. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.